Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, April 15th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a Calhoun cannabis supporter reacts to his county becoming the latest to opt out of the new medical marijuana program. Then we talk with the creators of a podcast that explores black maternal health in rural America. And a new mural in Oxford pays tribute to a Chickasaw woman with deep connections to the city's history. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's new medical marijuana law allows local governments to opt out of the program. More and more cities and counties are now taking advantage of that option. Yesterday, Calhoun County's Board of Supervisors voted to axe medicinal pot, a decision that frustrated local supporters of a cannabis program like county resident Glenn Fitcher. He speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. I think that they're being very short-sighted. I think they're also voting on what their own personal beliefs are, not what their constituents' beliefs are. What do you think opting out could mean for your county and yourself? For the county, I think that we're turning away potential tax dollars. We're also turning away um, people being able to have access to another form of medical care. For myself, I am an over-the-road truck driver, and I can't use it, but I have... I'm part of the VFW, our local VFW. I'm also, I have a father who has Parkinson-like syndrome, and I believe that this is basically maybe not taking those options away from any of our people there. And for myself, it's not taking them away completely, but it's putting an undue burden on us. For myself, I would like to see it available for anyone who could along with their doctor, decide they want it. But I would also like the business opportunities that come with the um, cultivation, with the processing and the sales end of it there. I would like to believe that maybe jobs be well enough that I can get a job closer to home. Are you are you planning on pushing back on this in any way? And if so, yes. what would that look like? Um, well, we are still not finished with them. They do have the right to opt back in. And they discussed that to some extent. Um, They're saying, well, we want to see what the other counties are going to do. Um, That was one of their reasons for saying they should opt out now. Um, But we are going to go after the signatures to get a ballot initiative started. And like I say, we're a a poorer county, but we will force them to have another vote if need be. We will go get the signatures and get a get it on the ballot again um, because they're, our county or our district voted for it 77% approval of the original initiative 65 
and I don't, I don't think it would be hard to get that passed again. It's just going to take longer. What do you think would happen if the city did not opt back in and people would have to travel long distances, possibly to another county or to a city that does allow it? I think it would be a, a quite an undue burden um, on the residents of Calhoun County. I think it would also be sort of self-defeating in itself that it would it would force everyone to like say um, I'm in Yalabusha County right now. That's where my dad goes to his physical therapy, and just driving over here it costs us approximately a week. It goes twice a week, probably sixty dollars worth of gas. So if you had to go get your prescription filled you know that that's quite an added cost on top of the cost of the actual prescription every time you go to get that and i don't understand why they would want to take that away from somebody who may very well benefit from it you mentioned that your county voted overwhelmingly to adopt initiative 65 uh, back when it was a ballot initiative do you think that you're going to be able to gather enough signatures to contest what the county to contest the county's uh, decision recently, and do you think that the county will vote to overturn the opt-out? I'm hopeful that they would, but I'm not very certain that the county supervisors would do that. I think it's going to have to come to the people to come and have another vote on this, another ballot initiative, basically, for the county. Um, And I think that we will win that but I see no reason why we should have to go through all of this because it's kind of like getting permission to get permission, if that makes any sense. I think mostly what it amounts to is that there's a lot of people that, whether it be through personal conviction or lack of knowledge, they just don't want anything to do with it. Glenn Fitcher is a resident of Calhoun County. Coming up, we talk with the creators of a podcast that explores black maternal health and rural America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. We're approaching the end of Black Maternal Health Week in the U.S. Here in Mississippi, data indicates black women and their babies are disproportionately at risk for illness and death during childbirth. That's especially true for African Americans in rural parts of the state. Gabriel Horton and Martina Abrahams-Ilunga host a podcast called Natal that explores the intersection of birthing and race in depth. They spoke with Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane about the second season of their show, which debuted earlier this year. Here's Gabriel. Natal is a podcast docuseries about having a baby while black. Uh, We pass the mic to black families to share their experiences uh, with reproductive health care more broadly, specifically thinking about pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum care. And we also hear from medical providers, advocates, birth workers like midwives and doulas who are also supporting these families uh, day-to-day in their work all over the country. And this season of Natal is focused on rural America. So we have been following three families, 
in Iowa, Hawaii, and Mississippi to learn all about their journeys to parenthood and their own words. And Martina, do you want to share a little bit about how we got started? Yes, definitely. So our, you know, our founding, our origin story is really Gabrielle and I, neither of us are parents. We haven't given birth, but we were really inspired and motivated by the stories of loved ones um, and their journeys towards giving birth. So back in, I think it was 2019, Gabrielle's childhood best friend um, actually gave birth almost two months early um, after suffering from preeclampsia. And she and her baby are okay. But that really got Gabrielle thinking about, hmm, this is something that, you know, I keep hearing about everyone from Serena Williams to um, Beyonce or just, you know, to Allison Felix, um, the Olympian track runner, um, sharing stories about really tragic things happening during or um, immediately following giving birth. Um, And then on my side, um, you know, I grew up hearing the stories of my own mother and different family members who have had their own really scary experiences. And so just as young women who at the time were in our late 20s were really curious about, okay, what is happening um, with Black birthing folks around this country? Like, why do we keep seeing these really scary stats and, and these really scary stories? And so we kind of approached, uh, we, we wanted to answer that question. You know, what does care look like? Um, what is the kind of care that Black folks are receiving? And so our first season set out to answer that. And then, like Gabrielle mentioned, our second season goes a little deeper now, really focusing on three families and, and really looking at rural care specifically and rural care experiences. Gabrielle, you mentioned that this most recent season, season two of the podcast, focuses on rural families. Why was that of particular interest? Absolutely. So I'm based in Los Angeles, and Martina mm-hmm. is in New York. And a lot of our team kind of splits, uh, you know, sort of split across uh, those two cities as well. And so while we did a really good job in season one highlighting different types of family units, um, folks from across different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different types of pregnancy outcomes, one thing that we realized that we didn't have much of, or really honestly any of, were mm-hmm. reflections and the stories of black birthing people and families and providers who were working and focused on rural families. And mm-hmm. what we sort of knew sort of just on the surface level was that there was this, there's been an ongoing trend of rural hospital closures, right? And we think a lot about access to care. Um, and one of those things is sort of access to physical sites, you know, hospitals or pregnancy centers or different types of, of spaces where people can learn about their bodies and about their health and receive the care that they need. And we knew that this looked different in rural uh, areas, especially for black folks. And so we just decided to sort of just focus our attention on that so we could kind of keep the stories as broad as possible, but we knew that we were in a certain place. And so that was really important for us and to really sort of connect with a lot of um, advocates and care workers and just folks who've been doing this work for a long time. So we spent a lot of time just learning about uh, the communities that we were going into before we really got started with production. Um, And so that's kind of how it came to be. And, uh, you know, we're pretty excited about it, too. This most recent season, as you said, features a couple from Mississippi, uh, Eric and Shayla, who move back home to the Mississippi Delta while Shayla is pregnant with their fifth child. Why was their story of interest to you and how did you first get in touch with them? So one of the things that we do is when we're looking um, 
for parent storytellers, that's what we, we call the parents who we feature on Needle, we put out a call for stories, and Shayla actually answered that call. She was, I think, one of the first parents to respond. She sent him a video introducing herself and her family and just sharing a little bit about her um, her stories as a, as a mother and as a birthing person. And we were really intrigued because, she, like, uh, like, you know, from the series, Shayla said she had five children. Most of them she had birthed at home. Her husband had caught a couple of them. And we were like, wow, we haven't really come across someone who's had um, – some of those experiences, at least on natal, you know, we haven't featured those kind of stories on natal. So we were definitely intrigued from there. But after talking with Sheila and Eric, I mean, their story, they just were so open with us. They shared really um, so much about their experiences just as reproductive people, shared so much about their family and their family dynamics and the ups and the downs they've gone through and really fighting to be able to give birth on their own terms, to raise their family the way that they want to, overcoming a bunch of systemic barriers, both in Mississippi, but also in the other cities outside of the state that they had Mm -hmm. lived in. Um, And I think that we're really inspired by how intentional and how purposeful birthing is for them. You know, it's, it's, not something that just happened that they do by accident. You know, they put a lot of thought into how they birth, how they bring life into this world, and what it means really for the future of Black liberation, what it means for Black folks to claim agency over these experiences and to birth on their own terms and to find um, affirming care that dignifies these desires, that dignifies their bodies. We really just saw them as a breath of fresh air and was super inspiring, I think, for folks all across the country, regardless of how or where they want to give birth. You also explore the history of the so-called Mississippi appendectomy, and you share Mm -hmm. the story of Fannie Lou Hamer, who uh, had her uterus surgically removed without her consent. Why Mm -hmm. is that history an important part of talking about the experience of giving birth and the experience of birth while, of giving birth while black in the 21st century. Mm. Mm. That's real. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we I, both have thought. What do you think, Martina? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think one thing for us that going into the season that we talked about as a team was when we talk about birth, you can't talk about it in a silo. You have to talk about it within the broader context of reproductive justice, right? And what it means for folks of all backgrounds, but especially black folks, to have complete agency over the all of their reproductive experiences. And so when you start from there, Sandy Hamer's story absolutely makes sense within the context of talking about black birthing in Mississippi throughout the South and throughout the country. Um, we thought we, 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 couldn't, we couldn't ignore that. And I think what was so interesting, and this is complete coincidence, is that Shayla and Eric, had sought care following a miscarriage in the very same town that Sandy Lou Hamer passed away in and where she had really became, um, had come up in her, in her advocacy and her activism as a civil rights leader. It's where she had worked with other leaders um, in, in the civil rights movement and was part of the, the fight for voting rights, but also for reproductive justice as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we saw those links between Shayla's story and Eric's experiences with Fannie Lou and just going to this small Mississippi town to receive care and how it's a place where Fannie uh, Lou Haber was actually able to receive care. But like Gabrielle mentioned, with this wave of hospital closures 
not even just recently, but going back into the, the mid-20th uh, century, they, everything kind of builds together, and, and Salem Hamer's story naturally kind of bleeds into Shayla and Eric's story. So it wasn't something that we had originally uh, thought, but once we started to do more research on some of the things and places that Sheila and Eric had shared with us, we were like, oh, wow, like, look, look at these dots connecting, and we were like, we have to talk about this. Like, this, this kind of tells the story in a way better than we can tell the story by bringing in Samuel Lou Hamer's um, own experiences and featuring her throughout, you know, in, in our fourth episode. Gabriel Horton and Martina Abrams, or rather Abraham Ilunga, host the podcast Natal. The second season of the show is available now. Still ahead, a new mural in Oxford pays tribute to a Native American woman with a deep connection to the city's history. We'll tell you all about it. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A mural of the Chickasaw woman, Hoka, is set to be unveiled Monday in Oxford. According to a popular legend, with some documentation to back it up, Hoga once owned the land that is now Oxford. She was forced to sell the parcel before the Chickasaw's relocation to Oklahoma under President Andrew Jackson's order. Some versions of Hoka's story refer to her as a Princess Hoka, despite the fact that historians say the title is inaccurate and misleading. Anna Murphy, who's a visual artist based in Chicago, painted the mural. The design of the mural has the figure of of Hoka in the the center, and I worked with um, the Chickasaw Nation to to create her the way she would look because there was no photographs of her, so... They gave me several images of modern-day Chickasaw women, and I used that to make a composite of, a, of her face. Um, and then she's surrounded by native animals and native plants um, to uh, Mississippi and also plants and animals that would have been meaningful um, to the Chickasaws. So, for instance, um, we have the red wolf, which doesn't really, I don't think that they're very prevalent in this area today, but they would have been during that time. And there's um, the white-tailed deer, the, the state bird of the, mocking, the mockingbird, the northern mockingbird, um, and several plants that would have been meaningful as well to the Chickasaws. And also one of my favorite parts is the white, there's a white dog in there, um, which was a spiritual protector for them and, and helped them on their journey when they had to leave the Oklahoma. So there's, there's lots of meaning in it. And um, so it's supposed to represent how Hoka was one, one with, with nature as she's kind of surrounded by these natural elements. What can you tell us about Princess Hoka? What did you learn about her? Well, one of the um, awesome things about Princess Hoka or Hoka, as they uh, would like us to call her, um, she so in the Native American culture, it was the women that, that owned the land, and it was through their their name that the lineage was recorded. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, and 
So she sold the land of Oxford in 1836, I believe. And there's really not much information after that, um, after she went to Oklahoma. Is there anything in your mind that you want folks to take away when they walk up on this mural or drive by it? Yeah, well, with all my all my murals and artwork, I always hope that people will feel inspired by it, um, uplifted by it. I I I love details and I love um, just you know creating beauty that when people see it, they they feel that beauty inside themselves and. And a lot of my work, like I said, has to do with Mother Earth and respecting life, respecting the Earth. And so, yeah, I hope that people feel inspired. And, and you know, I, I once I heard that art is supposed to make people feel that um, anything is possible. And so I, I think about that. I, I, I would love people to feel that, 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 you know, they see something, they feel inspired by it, and they that they can they can make something beautiful as well. Anna Murphy of Chicago, who is in Oxford, painting Princess Hoka, a Chickasaw woman who once owned the land that the city is on. We appreciate your time in speaking with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I invite um, anyone that would like to come out on April 18th at 5.30 p.m. to Oxford Square North Plaza to come see the mural finished and Enjoy the celebration with us.